0: Being the Worst, Episode 40, recorded Monday, June 29, 2015. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst Podcast Audio Apprenticeships for the Aspiring Software Craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat discuss Renat's recent blog post that covers all the things that he thinks he did wrong with his open-source Locad CQRS framework. Carrie asks for clarification on some of the topics in the post and tries to get Renat to see the good things that came from his, quote, big mistake of a framework. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. Hey, we're back, right? Yep, we're you're there, and I think we said something like this in the beginning of 2015, so I'm not even going to act like we're back or anything. We're just recording an episode, and your your blog post on uh, the Locad CRS retrospective is sort of what was driving this conversation, so why don't we um, just dive right into it? You got the timer started, 30 minutes? Yep. All right, so why don't you just tell us what the post is about, and then I'll kind of give you my thoughts on what, what I was thinking when I was reading it.
1: Okay, so basically, Locad Secures Perspective uh, summarizes the biggest mistakes I made while creating Locad Secures uh, Infrastructure, well, not an infrastructure framework, uh, while working back at Locad. And this was potentially interesting and nice framework back then because it allowed me to build Windows Azure backend applications and uh, web UI frontends for them. And these applications could be hosted on Windows Azure Plus they could actually run on local development machine for uh, development and demo purposes. However, as the time passed on, I've learned like lots of lots of mistakes that I made there and how these were actually maybe short-sighted decisions that were leading to a lot of pain for the developers who were working on this framework. And I've learned that all uh, working side by side by with awesome developers at Skewwwalt were actually uh, have to maintain uh, and work every day on the project that is using at Secure as framework at its core.
0: Right, so Skew Vault, they obviously saw the framework, downloaded it, started playing with it, and then they actually built pretty much their product and a company on top of it, right? Yep. What I guess I would just want to say about that, because when I was reading your post, I sort of was like wanting to call you and say, Renat, man, stop being so hard on yourself, because although I think you did explain in there how there was some initial goals and you were still learning about, you know, this new thing called the Azure cloud and trying to figure out how do you take advantage of it and build scalable applications on top of it. And then here you go. Here comes the software that you, you created and started using. I think that a lot of people were in that same boat and I was one of them. And I don't even think this podcast would exist if you didn't write that stuff and publish it because around the same time, A lot of us were getting the story about, hey, Microsoft has this new cool platform as a service cloud. It's the future. It's going to be awesome. And then when you actually started looking for material on what should I do, how do I actually use this? You basically ran into two options. One was welcome to the cloud. Don't embrace it at all. Continue doing your three-tier development like you used to do on infrastructure as a service. And you're really not doing anything new other than outsourcing the data center cool. Mm -hmm. That's not what I wanted. So other than the patterns and practices and a couple of small articles here and there, if you didn't want to spend nine months trying to figure out what to do and how to use the Azure cloud, if you happen to stumble upon your blog and this framework, at the very least, it gave novices like me a jumping off point to say, maybe this isn't perfect, but it's at least the gateway drug to platform as a service clouds and how to start thinking about these terms that I've never even really had to deal with on distributed systems and get me thinking about domain driven design and remembering messages and message queuing and stuff like that. So although yes, it ended up maybe having some challenges that the post talks about implementation wise, I think it might've just had a broader impact from that perspective of just getting people started thinking in a different way and asking new questions so that we could get to where we are right now.
1: Well, if the, project got started people thinking about the possibilities and the challenges, that's a good thing. However, if it acts uh, like a get- gateway drug, actually hooking them to a specific cloud provider and to a specific uh, architecture, which was uh, actually horrible, then that's a very bad thing for which I'm sorry. So <laughs> basically, like I guess with any sharp objects, scissors, knife, whatever, you can use it uh, two ways. Either hurt yourself or other people, or like, do put it to some good use. <laughs> Unfortunately, look at CQS actually made it extremely simple to hurt yourself. Probably, like, I'm not uh, that sorry for the framework. I'm actually sorry for making this sample or experiment, which wasn't validated by many uh, projects, uh, look like a reusable framework saying, okay, hey, you should use us.
0: Eh, maybe. I think you were still pretty humble like you are now back then, and all over the posts, just talking about it were pretty much disclaimers saying like, hey, this is what we have, and use it at your own risk, go for it, and I don't know, it, it's pretty easy to do Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, that's a term here for American football, you know, like, once the game's over, it's easy to say what you should do, right, but in 2012 or 11, when I was looking around for this stuff, it wasn't a whole lot of content bundled up for me, so... At the very least, at least I didn't implement anything on it, right? <laughs> I just learned about it, but I didn't stab myself because I didn't actually build anything. But sorry for those people who did, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, cool. Um, Were there any particular points, because obviously we'll have a link to, to the post itself, but was there any particular sections that – you um, wanted to highlight or call out, because I, I had some stuff in mind, too, but I just wanted to ask you.
1: The biggest uh, problems with look at, uh Secure's framework, and probably uh, there are also advices for somebody who's trying to get away with it. Uh, the problem number one was use of messaging, actually overuse of messaging to the extreme. Second problem was with uh, atomic storage, which is uh, abstracted away Blob storage of Windows Azure, allowing it to be used kind of as a document database. These are two big implementation problems. And the biggest higher level design problem is that I wanted the framework to be like a bunch of reusable blocks that could be actually used later somewhere on to be used by people to actually compose their software like Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And Actually, that's was a very naive and very childish approach. Well,
0: wait. So on, on that particular one, because that was one of the things that stuck out to me, right? That was a little mm-hmm. conflicting a little bit, and I wanted you to explain a little bit, right? So I think if you've been around software development for a while, at some point you come across many people suggesting the idea that reusability and components, even now with like React and composable UIs with React components or you know, composable web UIs and and not a monolithic user interface, for example. Generally, compartmentalizing things into reusable blocks of stuff and making them like Lego blocks isn't always a bad thing. And even the .NET framework itself is kind of a bunch of Legos to build on top of, right? So how are you drawing the line between what are good reusable things that you shouldn't rewrite every single time versus stuff that you should treat more as very context-specific,
1: rebuild-it-every-time stuff? That's a fine line. I guess uh, I'm just starting to learn about it. However, based on my limited experience, it's very easy to build uh, a reusable block that you think is really reusable, but in fact is just a bunch of uh, consultantware. Well, and consultantware is, a, for example, a software product or a reusable block uh, that looks reusable. But when somebody else plugs it in their software and starts using them, they actually start discovering the limitations of that building block. They start adding crutches. They start adding scaffolding to, like, work around these limitations. And half a year later, or a year later, they turn like this reusable block, like a virus, turned their software into such a horrible mess that they can't even move forward. They have to hire that person as a consultant to help them move forward. <laughs> and that's actually probably a viable business model for somebody who wants to make a living out of the software development. <laughs> make something that is looks good but isn't good, that is going to infect the software, and then they'll have to call you.
0: So l- let's say that now you have a new perspective on, in this particular case, the blob storage or the atomic storage stuff. For those contexts and microservices or boundaries that need document-like storage of messages or events or whatever you want to call it. In that case, if you found something like event store or, or whatever, I would imagine that you would write sort of the data access library to that once and reuse that, right? You wouldn't, like, try to rebuild that every single time.
1: Uh, that would actually depend, first of all, uh, because quite often the data access library will hold it will be a thin layer on top of some existing client library. And this data access library will hold the uh, abstractions and maybe some shortcuts or uh, higher level language uh, methods uh, that allow my code in my specific domain to uh, use this uh, data storage most efficiently. However, uh, the higher point is that I wouldn't bundle that stuff into the Located QRS as a framework or basically just kind of quote-unquote microservices framework mm-hmm. simply because the data storage is actually an implementation detail mm-hmm. it's not that relevant for example uh, one let's say we have a bunch of projects a bunch of businesses who drank the microservices Kool Aid. although in reality this is this aren't microservices this are just uh, fine-grained uh, services
0: mm-hmm. Something
1: that people and event have been doing for decades already mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the business have drunk a Kuwait of fine-grained services, and they want to build them. And the most important part that is needed there is not the implementation details, because the implementation details are inside the each service, and they can be uh, really specific, and we can use in each specific case uh, a different data storage, for example. Like in one case, we can uh, leave with uh, memcached as our storage. Uh, in another case, we can use Postgres. In the third case, we can use Redis. Each of the storages will have a different replication guarantees. It will have a different data consistency guarantees. Uh, in some case, we might want to use, uh, some storage that allows, uh, to, uh, that allows you to have distributed transaction log, something like Apache Kafka. Or in some other case, you have a business and, and a development team who are so used to the concept of event store and event sourcing uh, that they want to use that. So there are lots of lots of uh, factors at play, and each business is uh, represented by unique combination of these factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the factors can include language, uh, favorite tool set, uh, personal uh, preferences of the founder, based on his uh, experience with other projects, etc. Et In each company, each project, each team, each culture, it, this stuff will be different. Uh, and when we're focusing on building uh, fine-grained services, like these are the implementation details which we would be more efficient with if we let the implementers choose.
0: So that kind of gets to another section of your post where you gave some good examples of sort of where the the storage that you were using in Locad CQRS sort of was going wrong as as things got bigger and more and more messages and trying to do large bulk operations, for example. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came to mind when I was reading it was, okay, well, I, I understand where this could get ugly and wouldn't be very fun. But on the flip side of that, I'm like, okay, you gave some suggestions about what you could do, and you just got done talking about how each team or uh, company or context could sort of pick the appropriate storage per their problem to solve, which makes sense. But in your experience, and I don't know if you've had experience with this yet in, in production, is so now let's say I've got five separate contexts, and two of them have Postgres one has Kafka, one has event store, or whatever, right? Like, is the operational problems that you talk about avoiding in your post, does it just look different? Is it just as big of a mess? Like, I don't necessarily want to become a infrastructure as a service, Postgres, DBA, and database maintainer on three separate silos. And I'm talking, obviously, in a, it's that team's problem. But if, if you're a company of one or two, you could find yourself, you know, maintaining five, Different data storage technologies on five separate <laughs> Amazon instances or something. You're like, Where's the happy medium there for you? And, and what does that look like on the flip side?
1: Uh, well, that's a uh, consultant inspired uh, answer. It all depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. Because, uh, <laughs> for example, in some company, you might have already uh, admin in the staff who can take care of the Linuxy things and, for example, who can uh, help to manage and replicate Postgres. Mm-hmm. In the other team, you might have uh, an admin and backend developers who have experience, for example, Apache React data storage, which is a distributed uh, key-value storage uh, running on Erlang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for for example, Apache React, it simply runs. It uh, handles nodes additions uh, transiently. Uh, it replicates all the data as needed, and it's magical. It's almost as magical as the Foundation DB, which was acquired, unfortunately, by Apple. There could be other databases or there could be a business who can, for example, uh, doesn't require 99.99 availability, uh, but they would definitely benefit from the capabilities offered by Postgres. And it doesn't have like an ideal replication because uh, if you have a master and a slave, and then a master dies, slaves becomes a master, and then it's hard to go automatically back up, I think. However, like, uh, Postgres might be more than enough for lots of businesses. Mm-hmm. So it's always a lot of uh, things to have in mind uh, in, uh, while considering the backend storage for your microservice, mm-hmm. or well, just uh, for data storage. And actually, these days, uh, and that's an interesting thing, lots of applications—they're not; uh, their main complexity is not in the uh, business logic because we know how to handle that. The main complexity uh, becomes in the actual data manipulation, because uh, we have so much data we need to store, and each part of that data might need to be stored under different uh, availability uh, conditions with uh, different replication factors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And companies actually started like building the, their data infrastructure by composing together lots of lots of specific data services, like for example, uh, using replicated Redis. Uh, for, uh, caching data, uh, using, uh, the same Apache Kafka for replicating data, uh, using Apache, what was the name? Uh, spray, I think, no, it wasn't spray. This Apache, fr- uh, framework for, uh, continuous data processing, for real-time da- data processing, uh, to analyze the data, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, this idea comes, uh, this idea is not going to play well with, uh, a design idea that we're having Pretty fine building blocks for data storage.
0: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: So basically, these are just uh, the opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, of course, it, uh, it might be possible and feasible in some scenarios. For example, when you have a data block for uh, tabular data access and you're building all, everything on top of that. That would work because like, uh, crowd data models and storing everything over the business logic, uh, the database had existed uh, with us for decades. But we know that this approach can go wrong, especially when you start writing business logic and sort of procedures.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think another theme that you had in your post, and you basically flat out said it and also maybe implied it in a few spots, was these days you'd kind of lean towards things that are already out there. And I think what goes along with that is sort of implied, already out there, already proven and most likely has, hopefully a still thriving and active community around it because you're not alone. If Renat decides that he wants to be on a sailboat for the rest of his life and you can't get support on Locad CQRS anymore, you're pretty much screwed. But if you're on Postgres or one of the you know larger community-backed projects for not only your data storage but pretty much any major component in your architecture,
1: that's probably going to
0: end up being a good thing.
1: Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> uh, basically, when you're choosing uh, a different technology or approach for a project, uh, more backing it has, a bigger community, mm-hmm. easier for you it will be to move forward. Like, uh, usually, w- when we're uh, building software for the business, we don't try to, with this software, with this development, to like create a revolution. Ideally, we're just the tiny man who are standing uh, on shoulders of the giants. Right. And if, for example, uh, if the giant is a Facebook, Who is uh, going to drive things forward? Then we have a chance that the technology will not be forgotten in a few years. If the giant is Microsoft, uh, and it is building something like Silverlight or, I don't know, OData or something like that, then we have a slight chance that this uh, project is going to end nowhere or is going to be in enterprise niche. So there is always, uh, there are always factors to consider but like by picking the solutions that already exist that are proven that have uh, a decent uh, community we increase the chances that uh, this is going this part is going to be a happy ride for us
0: and i think that you obviously um a lot of the a lot of the stuff we were talking about that went wrong was more on the implementation and operations of things and and i think that a lot of the higher level design stuff that we've talked about in past episodes and and continue to think about hasn't changed all that much i assume that even today you still have some some elements of domain driven design where it makes sense that you use to design your your use cases and your business objects and and stuff like that and i would imagine they still get shaped into some kind of i don't know if you're using messages or json objects like like you, you you talked about the dsl tool and how that was one of the most important things and you would prefer to actually make it a little harder to create those contract message contracts because of its importance. But if I'm not using messages to send commands everywhere to communicate, and instead I'm using HTTP RPC, like you say in the post, walk me through a little bit of an example of how you design it today, where you say, okay, I've got my domain here. So I turn those into, I don't know if they're commands or events or messages or whatever, but how does your domain model actually manifest itself in code these days?
1: So, yes, indeed, uh, all the stuff that we're talking about the domain-driven design, uh, about uh, the commands, e- events, it all still holds true. Because ba- basically these are design blocks that are actually reusable. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, the implementation details, uh, I changed uh, how I approach it. So, for example, whenever we talked about the command messages, like they were asynchronous one way, uh, This way, I'd avoid using them at all cost because uh, that actually creates a lot of problems first. And second, uh, a synchronous one-way command, for example, sent uh, by the web UI uh, to the server. is Since it's asynchronous, it's not even a command, it's just an event. Browser is saying, uh, customer clicks this button, and server will deal with that sometime later. Uh, So, uh, and the disadvantage of having one-way messages is that you can't return uh, a response code or something like that uh, immediately. And, uh, for example, when you need to know the outcome of an operation in the browser, for example, to in order to proceed with the registration, uh, then you have to go for this um, secure S loops in the case you're using secure S. In other cases, you might use a different channel. Uh, and so uh, these days, when I'm talking about the, uh, implementing, for example, a kind of quote unquote microservices architecture, uh, the domain model would still exist in the similar places. It will be just expressed differently. So, for example, what we're, talk- we're talking about, the commands, it will be just uh, HTTP uh, request patterns, uh, re- uh, HTTP request methods, URLs uh, that are exposed by the API. Uh, the API will, the service, if I'm using event-driven architecture, will still the same way publish events. And this will be same finally crafted, uh, manually crafted uh, domain events that we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. Different services, uh, these can be represented by different nodes in the cluster or uh, multiple in-process services that are uh, talking together in uh, process bus. Uh, will still communicate by publishing events and subscribing to events.
0: So, because you you just said events a couple of times and you're still creating those domain messages Mm -hmm. in a similar way, does that mean that although the data storage technology on the back end might be different per context, that they're all essentially storing some serialized version of those messages?
1: Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, Because a module, like uh, what we know about the module, uh, about the backend module, uh, is its contract. And in the contract, at least the way uh, I tend to be designing like business-intensive logic these days, uh, is that it can accept HTTP calls uh, where data uh, or the request is serialized some way uh, or another. Uh, and these HTTP calls are, uh, can return, like, valid HTTP answers, like, for example, HTTP status OK, or uh, post or uh, bad request, et etc. et cetera. Uh, Then, internally, so basically the public surface of a module is its uh, web API interface. Uh, internally, uh, like, within the system, we know that the module, uh, it accepts these HTTP calls, uh, the module can also publish events as uh, an outcome of this uh, HTTP call, and it can also subscribe to the events from the other modules in order to be notified of the changes. Mm-hmm. There is nothing uh, in the system that tells how it stores data. Simply because uh, the internal storage and implementation details uh, of the module are of no, mm, of no one else's concern. This would allow us to scale modules independently. This will uh, allow us to refactor this internal data storage. Because, like, if we know that nobody ever touched the database of this module, then we can actually uh, drop this database completely or, and replace it with something else without uh, breaking anything. Mm-hmm. So, like, the internal data storage, internal state of the module is of no one else's concern. I see. Uh, and actually, like, when uh, doing the uh, while running a verification of use cases for each specific module, what I would do is uh, I would set up this module in isolation uh, using, for example, uh, a dedicated Postgres uh, namespace if we're uh, using Postgres or any other uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the use case would have to be run on this module in isolation. And this way, if actually this module depends uh, on some other uh, module, implicitly by uh, some, I don't know, uh, variable hijacking, whatever, singleton, then it will break. Uh, this uh, has a side effect that we can actually deploy this module completely independently on a different environment we're having without having uh, any dependency issues. So uh, back to the contracts. Uh, the serv- uh, backend service module, uh, it has an API which accepts uh, RPC calls in some form. The best one, is, uh, HTTP. And it can subscribe to events it's uh, interested in, and it can publish events. Internally, it can have, uh, it can store the data. For example, uh, it can use, uh, Grex event storage for, uh, doing event sourcing with aggregates. Uh, it can have, uh, a simple transaction log storage for, uh, doing, uh, Kafka style event sourcing. Mm-hmm. or it can uh simply store immediately to the database and publish events as uh, as a side effect or it can store changes uh, as a database updating like the rows and then it can uh, publish a transaction log outside
0: huh. that makes sense now we have a, probably a couple minutes left here so i think that's some of the work you're doing at sku vault right now right to kind of take apply some of this learning to the problems they're actually having right now. And I'm hoping that in future episodes we can start digging into, you know, cause your, your post, we could probably take each paragraph and turn it into an episode and, and learn how to, you know, learn from the past mistakes and re-implement it in a new way. So I'm hoping that we can dig into some of that because there's a whole bunch of other sections at the end of the post that you get into about continuous delivery and other things that you said, you know, you weren't even thinking about back then operationally and stuff like that. So, Any thoughts on how we might be able to, after we talk about some of these things, get our hands dirty with stuff? Because as I've told you many times, uh, I don't learn anything really (laughs) unless I actually
1: try to do it. So, it's hard to say. Like I haven't published open source .NET project uh, that that code in a while. Mm -hmm. However, on the GitHub there is uh, this Omni project, uh, which is a rebuild reference implementation of kind of microservices architecture in uh, we, that we've done in HPC, mm-hmm. but i uh redone it completely from the scratch while improving some things I wanted to improve and uh, basically providing a separate implementation so that uh, it will be open source. Hmm. Uh, and actually the stuff I'm doing currently with uh, .NET code, uh, it's almost a one-to-one port from Golang to C Sharp. Oh, okay. Uh, and actually, you know, coming back uh, at the look at secure and how I would have done things differently. So, like if I were to do look at today, uh, one of the things I would focus instead is uh, as providing a reference implementation or a sample uh, on how to actually express contracts of a, a of a service and how to actually verify them. Uh, how to verify them, for example, with uh, use cases that can be used to check the logic. Uh, print the documentation and provide uh, some higher level constraints on the business logic.
0: Well, I hope that we can get into applying some of that so that we can try this stuff out and show people um that are listening, you know, hey, here's some examples of how you might do that and, and we can, you know, that can be manifested in any way that you feel comfortable with as, you know, not frameworky, but at least examples that say, hey, you know, maybe getting back to some of the, the homework kind of style stuff in the early days because I think if we look back at some of our initial, you know, first ten, fifteen, twenty episodes, a lot of that stuff was about the design and foundational stuff about DDD and messaging and event stores and just stuff that doesn't change that much with technology. And I'd love to revisit a lot of those things and say, okay, knowing what you know now, what should we do? You know, what what was dumb about that stuff? Because I understand what you're saying about how important um crafting the message contracts is and stuff like that. But I also know that I liked the DSL tool because the very verbose contracts that were <laughs> required to type up was annoying. So I'd love to learn in, a, in an example, like when we're doing it say, okay, where's the balance? You know, when, when can I feel good that I've designed and crafted my messages properly, but then don't have to do the monotonous brackets, brackets, brackets contract, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, I'd, I'd love to see how you actually do that these days.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, and actually, uh, one quick hint on how that can be improved: don't use a verbose language for that.
0: Well, I mean, if you if you're like in your current scenario, if you're doing something on .NET,
1: like you are, then it- you're stuck with verbose. Uh, <laughs> if you're actually doing that in C sharp, alternative way, uh, I think uh, if you're trying if you're using F sharp for the message contracts. Will, they will still be uh, available for your C-Sharp code, but they might do it. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. That makes sense.
0: Cool. So maybe use some of the pain, <laughs> some of that pain to motiv- motivate you to use maybe use something that's more appropriate to doing that part of it. Cool.
1: Yep. Okay. But we can try to talk about this later as we figure out. Exactly.
0: Cool. Well, we will um, we will sync up after this and uh, figure out what the next step is. And uh, we realize that the website's been down. Beingtheworst.com, the domain still exists. We still have it. It's just we had some struggle with the website, so we'll get that fixed up. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this and the RSS feed. Should have still been working, and that'll obviously be. Uh, we'll obviously publish this episode on the feed, so that should be good. Don't know about comments and how that's all going to work out just yet, but we still have our Twitter account that you can tweet to us at being the worst. So at being the worst, all one word, and I am at KC Street, and he is at Abdulin on Twitter. So anything else, bud? Uh, that's
1: it. And sorry for the mistakes. <laughs> We're learning. I Again,
0: you can say sorry for the mistakes, and I will say thank you for putting those mistakes out there because without them, I probably wouldn't have reached out to you to just even start these conversations. I probably would not have cared too much about domain-driven design, uh, at least not at that time. And uh, a lot of the other concepts that we got into in 2012 and the early episodes, I probably wouldn't have even spent much time on those at all if it wasn't for your Horrible, disastrous framework that you put out as open source on there. So I will continue to think of it as a good learning experience and be grateful that you did it, even though some people might be suffering because of it.
1: Okay, sounds (laughs) fair.
0: All right, guys. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.